This is the BBC Home Service. We're interrupting programmes to make the following announcement. It is understood that in accordance with arrangements between the three great powers, an official announcement will be broadcast by the Prime Minister at three o'clock tomorrow. In view of this fact, tomorrow, Tuesday, will be treated as victory in Europe Day. After nearly six long years, the war in Europe is finally over. May 8, 1945, is declared victory in Europe Day. Spontaneous celebrations erupt throughout the world. From Mad Lab Studios, I'm Ben James, and this is Beyond the Walls. Imagine it's late April in 1945. You're a 31-year-old small business owner. Well, at least you were before the war began. Fabric and textiles, that was your chosen profession and really, things were going pretty well with your small startup business. But you were inducted into the Army two years ago. It wasn't something that you really wanted. Now, many of your friends and family had enlisted right after high school or wasted no time doing so after the attack on Pearl Harbor. You aren't opposed to serving if your country needs you, but it wasn't necessarily something that you were going to knock down doors to make sure that happened. Not long after reporting, you land at Camp Wheeler in Macon, Georgia as an infantry trainee. When you're shipped out, you can't help but shed a tear at the thought of leaving behind your wife, Ruth, and your unborn son. Your trip across the Atlantic wasn't really what any of you expected. There were 600 of you on each ship, and it took you 20 days to travel from Virginia to North Africa. As you were loading, the Army issued your equipment, and one of the more puzzling topics of conversation on the trip was as to why each of you was given two mattress covers. You find out sometime after the war that the reason that the second one was issued was because they were used as body bags during the Second World War. You've lost count as to how many battlefields you've seen, not to mention how many times that you have almost died. Your most vivid memories during the war are how many faces of your brothers that you've seen the life fade from their eyes. In your time in the Army, you've marched behind General Patton. You've had the opportunity to not only see, but also shake the hand and spend some time in conversation with General Eisenhower as well. You've heard the praise on your behalf because of your bravery and your acts of selfless sacrifice. You've landed on beaches, you've also been wounded by shrapnel multiple times. In January of 1944, you'd even been assigned to the historic Thunderbird Division. But the talk that you've been hearing this morning is by far your favorite topic since you've been here. The Germans are planning to surrender. It's that morning your company commander comes to you and tells you that he wants you to step up in position. You've been around long enough that you know that with the Germans likely surrender, this would mean a third theater of operations against the Japanese who have no plans of surrendering. You've learned that after your first combat experience to not seem too eager about your accomplishments nor 
be too quick at running your mouth about your potential after finding yourself on the front line after bragging to your commanding officer about your athletic ability. Your mind goes back to the dead of winter, just five months ago. Your company is attempting to cross the line into German territory. There were two lines in this war, and these lines were a system of pillboxes, heavily reinforced with fields of fire that cross over them, so if you get through the first line, you're most likely going to get hit in the second line. Despite your repeated attempts to push through the line, it's becoming clear that you can't. It's at that time that you hear the command to retreat, a command whose plan was established beforehand and if the retreat was necessary you were told you'd be doing so by following a road that went steadily downhill until you were back at the safety of your own camp. You had an incident with shrapnel in your lower back and leg just a few months back that landed you in the hospital for a short stint. As you begin to make your retreat down the snow-covered road, it's with each jarring impact that your feet, your legs, and your lower back remind you that you haven't completely healed yet. Your pain increases with each step. The jolts of pain that course through your body are so intense that it actually becomes blinding flashes in your eyes. It's with the next step that your leg can take no more and gives way. You begin to fall and as you tuck your shoulder underneath and roll over an embankment, you see the tracer bullets flying overhead as you come to rest on your back. Tracer bullets that are flying exactly where you had been standing upright just a few seconds before. Snapping back to the conversation at hand with your company commander, you can't help but notice that you're rubbing your lower back where there still is to this day a nagging pain from the shrapnel injury. And in regard to your promotion, you reply, Sir, I appreciate this. I really do, but I have lots of points and I really want to use them to get out. I have two purple stars, I've seen two theaters of combats, and I have a bronze star, but, but I also have a wife that I've not seen in a long time and a son that I've never met. So at this time, I'm going to have to say thanks, but no thanks. That was just part of the story of Nate Crandall as he recalls the moment he decided that he was done fighting in World War II. After two once-in-a-lifetime kind of wars that changed the landscape of the world in the span of 30 years, it wasn't just Crandall that was ready for the fighting to stop. Outlooks, beliefs, practices, faith, loyalty, and security, just to name a few of the things that had changed as a result of these conflicts. And this wasn't just in the general population. This was also a time when the world saw a changing of the guard, so to speak, in the way of diplomacy. Foreign relations and overall trust had also changed, to the point that the Allied countries in World War II were at a proverbial global risk board in a dimly lit corner of the room long before the war had even ended. This was a time that, even as the world leaders were meeting with each other as allies, speaking strategy out of one side of their mouth, they were on the other side making backroom deals and maneuvers to make sure that they came out on top, not only of the ones that they were fighting against, but also the ones that they were fighting alongside. Joseph Stalin, the Russian president, had always feared that the other countries had aligned themselves with Russia as a result of the concept of 
the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And, in reality, this really wasn't that much of a stretch. After all, the Allied coalition was made up of countries that the only thing that they opposed more staunchly than Soviet communism was German fascism and what Hitler represented. So as it turns out, Stalin's paranoia wasn't completely unfounded. If we want to take a look at the extreme polarity of the situation, the natural enemy to communism was capitalism of any kind. Whether you're talking about the democratic capitalism that America represented or the imperial version of capitalism that was in operation in Europe at the time. The constant looking over of every shoulder in this time period was probably not only warranted, but was also a necessity. Imagine it's just before 9 p.m. on May 30, 1945. You're a young German mother of two in Brno, the capital of Czechoslovakia. You've gone through your normal routine. Well, as normal as a routine can be during this time. The world has been at war for years now, and at first, you tried to shield your kids from it as much as you possibly could. But you quickly realized that this was an impossible task. Even with the uncertainty of what each day may bring, there's been a sense of normalcy that brought about the sirens, the threats, and the disruption of silence at any time during the day or night. That's why maybe it's not entirely unusual that as you put your young kids to bed for the night, you begin to hear a commotion in the streets outside. It's nothing new, and while it isn't an every-night occurrence, commotion in the streets isn't something that causes panic anymore. As you look outside your window, you see young revolutionaries of the Czech National Guard marching through the streets. Again, nothing unusual. But what they're shouting is something that takes you a few moments to process. They're calling on all German citizens to be standing outside of their front doors at exactly 9 o'clock, with one piece of hand luggage each ready to leave the town forever. As you open the window to see if you're really hearing what you think you're hearing, it's at that point, young Czech looks up, tells you that you have 10 minutes to wake your children, get them dressed, get a few possessions together in one suitcase, and come outside onto the pavement. Once you're outside, you're approached by a young soldier demanding that you surrender your jewelry, your watch, your fur, and all of your money to him. Actually, the only possession of value you're allowed to keep is your wedding ring. It's at that point you and the rest of the German population are marched out at gunpoint to the Austrian border. You can't help but be a bit overwhelmed as to how many of you there are. It seems like there is an unending line both ahead of you and behind you of people being taken out of the town. It's pitch black when you reach the border. Your children, along with many others, are crying out of fear and confusion. You reach down to comfort them, but it's at this moment that your oldest child grabs your hand and begins to rub it. As you look into her eyes, you see something. Something that looks like a sense of understanding lying behind the fear. But it also seems that she senses the fear in you as well. As you share this moment, you go to rub her hand in return. 
It's at that point that you're grabbed by the arm as the Czech border guards begin to force you over the Austrian border. It's at that point even more trouble starts. The Austrians refuse to accept you, and now the Czechs are refusing to readmit you. You find yourself caught in between countries, one that won't take you in and the other that won't let you back. You find yourself, your children, and the sea of refugees now being pushed into a field for the night. This miserable night turns to miserable days, and here you still find yourself in a field which has now been turned into a concentration camp. You have only the food which the guards give you from time to time. You've been given no rations, and to make matters worse, a typhus epidemic now rages among the camp. As time passes, the Germans are said to be dying at the rate of 100 people a day. 25,000 men, women, and children were forced to make this march that's now known as the Brno Death March. Following World War I that ended in 1918, the victors created nearly a dozen new nations in Europe. When you look at the establishment of multiple brand new democratic countries, one thing that you have to have is time. In the decades following the war in the 1920s and 30s, time to focus on establishing new nations and governments wasn't something that was in great supply. Between ethnic differences, political corruption, and maybe most influentially the Great Depression, undermined the establishment of these new democracies, and time, which was scarce at best, had finally ran out. During World War II, Eastern Europe found itself directly between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. By the end of the war in 1945, the Soviet Union's Red Army occupied all of Eastern Europe. At the Yalta Conference, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet Communist dictator Joseph Stalin met at a resort in the Soviet Union. It was there that Stalin assured the other allies that he would allow the people in these Soviet-occupied countries to hold free elections and choose democratic governments. With the Soviet Red Army already possessing a foothold in Eastern Europe, Churchill and Roosevelt had little choice but to take Stalin at his word, even though the amount of faith between the two men was extremely low. And their lack of faith proved to be correct, as within three years, well-organized and very disciplined national communist parties, conveniently aided by Stalin, had taken control of nearly all of these countries in Eastern Europe. The Eastern European countries had been devastated by the war. Millions of people had been killed, and those who had survived the war found themselves threatened by famine. The future for these people really didn't look to be much brighter than their present, as unemployment, Inflation and just the overall state of life was demoralizing the people. Stalin was not only quick to notice this, but he was also quick to move into a place of making the declaration of salvation to these war-torn countries. Stalin promised the people of Eastern Europe a new era of equality and economic plenty under his socialistic system. With this promise of aid by the Soviets, most Eastern European countries that were non-communist quickly made alliances, but they also saw them eventually come under the control of the government powers, like the Soviet National Police. 
By 1948, with the support of the Soviet Red Army, the Communists had taken over the governments of eight of these European countries. Stalin wanted Eastern Europe under his thumb, both as a defensive buffer to protect the Soviet motherland and to expand socialism. He believed that history had already determined that the world would eventually become socialist. And with this, the Stalinization of Eastern Europe began. The Communist Party in each country held power. That meant that there was no independent political parties, no meaningful elections, and no criticism of the ruling communist. The government owned the factories, the farms, mines, and all other means of production. People could no longer own their own profit-making businesses and farms. The government decided what and how much should be produced each year, what the prices should be, and what wages should be paid to the workers. Everyone was guaranteed the right to work, but this came with no such guarantee for a livable wage or a decent job. And actually, it turns out that it meant just the opposite. In most countries, the government took over farms and combined them into large, state-owned agricultural enterprises or cooperatives. Most farmers resisted, but this resulted in the communists applying special taxes and the denial of health benefits to force them to comply. And that is if you were lucky. Shortages of goods were the norm. Even when they were in stock, there was no variety of goods. Often, only one type of laundry soap, one flavor of ice cream, or one kind of coffee was available. In the workplace, almost everyone had a job. Wages, though, lagged so far behind a common joke was, they pretend to pay us, and we pretend to work. Most industrial workers belonged to labor unions, but the unions were run by the government. Housing, built mainly by the government, was always in short supply. Almost always, you found two or three generations of a family living in a three-room apartment. Newlyweds usually had to wait years for a small apartment of their own. But everyone did have a home. Homelessness was not a problem. Public transportation was afforded and extensive. Most cities had webs of subway, streetcars, and bus lines that carried people everywhere in the city. Railroad transportation between cities was also low-priced. Officials, however, forbid travel outside of the Eastern Bloc. The government also controlled entertainment. The government paid the salaries of the theater companies and athletes. Box office prices were low. Everyone could afford to go to the theater, movies, the opera, the ballet, or sporting events. But you would see nothing that wasn't a direct production of the government. Universal public health systems, or socialized medicine, covered everyone. The government and state-owned businesses paid the costs of doctors, health clinics, and hospitals. As a result, the health of the population generally improved from that of what it was at the end of the war. The quality of the health care, however, still fell short of that provided by public health systems in most Western European nations. The rate of violent crimes was low, and as a result, the streets were safe. But crimes of corruption, such as bribery, flourished. Theft was an increasing problem for items that were in short supply. For example, car owners routinely removed their windshield wipers when they parked their cars. Otherwise, the wipers might be stolen and replacement parts were hard to find at this time. Under the communist systems of Eastern Europe, the government harshly suppressed freedom of speech, press, and assembly. 
The government controlled the newspapers, other medias, and even churches. The practice of any form of religion was highly discouraged. All the Eastern European countries established extensive secret police organizations and could arrest anyone at any time. The German Democratic Republic State Security Service, also known as the Stasi, was probably the most terrifying secret police organization in Eastern Europe. The Stasi kept files on an estimated 6 million people. Stasi agents regularly used phone taps, bugging devices, and video cameras to spy on their fellow citizens and even on the Stasi itself. A huge number of informants passed on information and rumors about their neighbors, fellow workers, and relatives. Even church ministers sometimes informed on members of their congregations. A climate of fear chilled the daily lives of the people. The following is a story written by Audrey Kaufman on October 5, 2009 for The Telegraph. Quote, Twenty years have passed since the fall of the Berlin Wall, but victims of communist East Germany's despised Stasi secret police say fighting off history's ghost is still a daily struggle. Not a day goes by without us reliving the past says Carl Wolfgang Hasefell, who is 65 at this time. He was jailed for crimes against the state and to this day cannot stand being in a room and having the door closed. A West German, he was arrested in East Germany for political activism. He was jailed and later brought back by his government in exchange for hard currency, which was a common practice at the time. There's a group of five men sitting around the table. All of them, members of a Stasi survivor's support group. They've spent between 13 months and 8 years in prison for a variety of crimes, including hostility to the regime, illegal trafficking, attempted flight from the Eastern German Republic, and spying. I can't stay in a small flat because I feel like I'm choking, and when I watch a film about those times I'm overwhelmed with memory, Hazefell says. Speaking of it here helps. We're a community. Others in the group agree, with one suggesting they have been abandoned by a society that just wanted to turn the page on history after the fall of the Berlin Wall. After the reunification of the country in 1990, the government allowed victims of the East German state to inspect their Stasi files, but some secrets hidden in the files just make things worse. The worst shock came from reading the files, says 74-year-old Edith Fiedler, who spent 20 months in prison because of the tales told by a jealous sister-in-law. I only found that out when I read my file, she said, recalling how authorities took away her 9-year-old son and put him in a home. Sitting opposite of her, her son, Daniel Fiedler, now aged 41, remembers how he was lied to and told his mother was in a coma after an accident on a roadway. Several in the group have gone through periods of depression. Some have even considered suicide. Tatiana Sternenberg, 57, who was betrayed to the Stasis as she prepared to flee East Germany with her Italian boyfriend, still suffers to this day. In jail, I didn't get enough to drink. I didn't get enough to eat, and I was giving psychoactive drugs. They put me in a straitjacket, she says. She and her boyfriend were held for some three years before being bought by the West German government. But the couple was never able to get over it, 
They divorced, and in 1996, she was hospitalized for depression. We are all victims of the Stasi, but we have a credibility problem. We have to prove that we suffered. She says, We need this support group because we can relate to one another. Adam Locks, 59, agrees. Once married to an East German, he was jailed for seven years on charges of smuggling. Today, he is obsessed with the thought that he might have been betrayed by his former wife. I'm sure of it, he says, but there's no proof. And that kills me. The only real spy at the table is Werner Kruger, who is 73 at this time. He spent eight years and three months in jail before being exchanged for another spy. The Stasi was never able to destroy me, he said, while the others remained silent. Perhaps it was a culmination of all of these factors. Or, maybe it was just an overall feeling of premonition that led Winston Churchill to present his Iron Curtain speech at Fulton, Missouri, on March 5, 1946. It's considered by many to be the announcement to the world of the beginning of the Cold War. Whether that's an accurate statement or not, it did seem to solidify the new situation that faced the world, and also give some insight on how the new, Unusual Cold War should be conducted to avoid World War III at all costs. Churchill informed President Roosevelt shortly before the Yalta summit in February of 1945 by saying, quote, At the present time, I think the end of this war may very well prove to be more disappointing than was the last. End quote. Churchill's great fear at this time was that the Western democracies would repeat the same mistakes that had cost them so dearly a decade before. As he wrote in The Gathering Storm, the Western democracies need only to repeat the same well-meaning, short-sighted behavior towards the new problems, which in singular resemblance confront us today to bring about a third conflict from which none of us may live to tell the tale. There was a very real possibility of communist takeovers of the governments of France, Italy, and Spain. America was rapidly demobilizing after the victory over Japan, and Americans were just simply looking forward to the material blessings of peace. Churchill knew that his warning would cast a pall over the mood of the nation. The term Iron Curtain defined the Soviet influence that was tightening over Eastern Europe. I am profoundly concerned about the European situation, Churchill wrote. An Iron Curtain is being drawn down upon their front. We do not know what is going on behind. Meanwhile, the attention of our peoples will be occupied in inflicting severities on Germany, which is ruined and prostrate, and it would be open to the Russians in a very short time to advance if they choose to the waters of the North Sea and the Atlantic. Churchill, seemingly, had been looking ahead to this problem since early in the war. Harold Macmillan related to Winston Churchill II a conversation he'd had with the young man's grandfather in early 1942. It was after a dinner hosted by General Eisenhower for the Joint Command, and your grandfather asked me to come back to his room for a drink. What type of a man do you think Cromwell is? was his odd question to me. I uttered, very aggressive, wasn't he? Your grandfather looked at me gravely and said, Cromwell was obsessed with Spain, but never saw the danger of France. At that time, we were losing the war, 
But with America now in, Churchill had concluded Nazism would be defeated and communism would take its place as the threat to Europe and to the world. Churchill realized that the Soviet political and military encroachments could be stopped only by a united West under the resolute leadership of the United States. On March the 4th, Churchill joined the presidential party aboard the Ferdinand Magellan, the train that was specially built in 1939 to accommodate presidential security in Roosevelt's wheelchair at Washington's Union Station. On the train, Churchill finally shared a draft of his Fulton speech with Truman, who expressed his approval. He told me he thought it was admirable, Churchill later wrote after Truman had distanced himself from the speech, and would do nothing but good, though it would create a stir. The train stopped at the St. Louis station in the early morning of March 5th. After lunch at the home of the Westminster's president, Churchill was taken to the college gymnasium for his speech. In his introduction, President Truman was characteristically plain-spoken. Mr. Churchill and I believe in freedom of speech. I understand Mr. Churchill might have something useful and constructive to say. Typically, Churchill opened on a light but warm note that immediately won the affection of his audience. With his hands clasping his honorary academic robes, he peered over his black spectacles and in his habitual stuttering style said, The, the name Westminster somehow or other seems familiar to me. <laughs> I, um, I feel as if I'd heard of it before. Uh, indeed, now that I come to think of it, it was at Westminster that I received a very large part of my education. Uh, in uh, politics, uh, dialectic, rhetoric, uh, and one or two other things. So, uh, uh, he then continued stating that the mission facing the world was the prevention of another global war. He pointed out to two institutions with major roles in the maintenance of peace, the United Nation and the continuing special relationship being built between Britain and America. Then, with a Tolkien-esque foreboding, Churchill began his description of post-war Europe. A shadow has fallen upon the scene so lately lighted by the Allied victory. Then, with clenched fist, he sketched the cause of that darkness in a paragraph he had added on the train, beginning with this internal rhyme. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. Churchill then offered insight into the mind of the Kremlin. I do not believe that Soviet Russia desires war. What they desire is the fruits of war indefinite expansion of powers and doctrines. For such Soviet imperialism, he offered this prescription. 
From what I have seen of our Russian friends and allies during the war, I am convinced that there is nothing they admire so much as strength, and there is nothing for which they have less respect for than weakness, especially military weakness. He then reinforced his post-war call for action with a reminder of this unheeded warning before the war. Last time, I saw it all coming, and I cried aloud to my own fellow countrymen and to the world, but, uh, but no one paid any attention. Up till the year 1933, or even 1935, Germany might have been saved from the awful fate which had overtaken her. And we might all have been spared the miseries Hitler let loose upon mankind. There never was a war in history easier to prevent by timely action than the one which had just desolated such great areas of the globe. It could have been prevented, in my belief, without the firing of a single shot. And Germany might be powerful, prosperous, and honored today. But no one would listen. And one by one, we were all sucked into the awful whirlpool. Surely, ladies and gentlemen, I put it to you, surely we must not let that happen again. Imagine it's June 16th, 1940. You're part of the wait staff at the Carlton Club in London. While the club has been in existence for over 100 years and considered to host the who's who of the Conservative Party, what it's most famous for is the meeting that was held less than 20 years back when it was there that backbench conservatives decided to withdraw David Lloyd George from government. You can't help but smile and still be a bit embarrassed by the ridiculous pride your mother showed just a couple years ago when you were hired. You can still hear the excitement in her voice as she wondered aloud about all the important conversations and meetings you would see taking place. And while you've seen several important people of the time dining at the club, you've yet to overhear any jaw-dropping conversations, or even be giddy with the possibility of being in a place to see or hear something. That is, until you came around the corner just a half an hour ago and saw the two gentlemen at your most recent table assignment. You inadvertently pause in your approach as you recognize both men at the table, and maybe more than that, your mind races at the possibility of what these two men could be meeting over. Obviously, war has broken out, and the men at the table represent countries that are allies, but still, there's just something about this moment that feels different. And as their meal goes on, you pick up little pieces of conversation every time that you approach the table. You overhear phrases such as the Nazi regime and words like Hitler and Stalin and communism and fascism. These are all words and phrases expected to be part of these gentlemen's conversations, but it's what you're hearing towards the end of the meal that could make the ousting of a government official seem like a warm-up act. As you spend time in the kitchen, the other staff continues to press you for what they're talking about. They keep rambling on and on with the gossip of possibility, all the while trying to pester you into divulging details that they know that you've heard in the conversation. You keep blowing them off, telling them that they are just eating together as friends and that you haven't heard anything out of the ordinary. But from the way they're looking at you, you know that they're not buying it. 
And to be honest, you're really not buying it either. You've never been the best liar. But if you're hearing what you think you're hearing, telling them the truth would probably be more unbelievable than anything you could make up. You try to pace yourself and not be obviously eavesdropping by too frequently attending the table, but my goodness, this has the potential to be huge. As the men have long finished their meals and drinks, you can now sense that they're about to finish their meeting as well. In your final approach, you hear one gentleman remark, well, I must say, I think Prime Minister Reynal will be pleased, very pleased indeed. With this statement, the men shake hands. With your voice shaky and on the verge of cracking, you ask if there will be anything else that they will be needing tonight. With Nazi Germany on the brink of crushing France, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and French Undersecretary of Defense Charles de Gaulle met for lunch at the Carlton Club in London. These two great symbols of patriotism and national independence made an incredible agreement at this luncheon. Britain and France should be united into a single country called the Franco-British Union. This was just two weeks after British and French troops were rescued from the beaches of Dunkirk where they had become surrounded by German troops. Although that battle story is fairly well known, the political drama that followed, which saw Britain and France almost merge, is now largely forgotten. The scheme of these two becoming one nation was born of crisis. On May 10, 1940, Germany had begun a relentless assault on France, and within a month, French resistance had largely collapsed. Defeatism was rife in France, and a dramatic step was needed to encourage the country and to stop the French fleet from falling into German hands. On June 14th, German troops entered Paris. During the next 48 hours, British and French civil servants drafted a proposal for a declaration on Franco-British Union. This was no beefed-up wartime alliance or a plan of partial integration similar to today's European Union. The goal was to effectively create one country. The document stated, At this most fateful moment in the history of the modern world, the governments of the United Kingdom and the French Republic make this declaration an unyielding resolution in their common defense of justice and freedom against subjection to a system which reduces mankind to a life of robots and slaves. Basically, what this meant was that France and Great Britain shall no longer be two nations, but one Franco-British Union. At a stroke of a pen, hundreds of years of constitutional history would be swept away. There would be joint control of defense, foreign policy, finance, and economic policy. Churchill's private secretary said, We had before us the bridge to a new world the first elements of European or even world federations. Events moved fast. On June 16th, Churchill presented the idea to the all-party British cabinet. He was swept along by a wave of enthusiasm. I was somewhat surprised, wrote Churchill, 
To see the state, solid, experienced politicians of all parties engage themselves so passionately in an immense design whose implications and consequences were not in any way thought out. Charles de Gaulle, who had arrived that morning in London, also had qualms about ending the country of France as he knew it. But de Gaulle embraced the plan as a grand move to change the course of history. The gesture must be immediate, he was quoted. At 4.30 p.m., de Gaulle telephoned the French prime minister, who had fled the advancing Germans going from Paris to Bordeaux. The Prime Minister listened to the proposal for the Franco-British Union with mounting excitement as he scribbled down the details. According to one eyewitness, his eyebrows went up so far they became indistinguishable from his neatly brushed hair. The question that the Prime Minister had to de Gaulle was, does he agree to this? Did Churchill give you this personally? It was at that point that de Gaulle handed the phone's receiver over to Churchill who assured that he approved, and the French Prime Minister was transfigured with joy. In London, Churchill boarded a train along with the leaders of the major parties, ready for a rendezvous with destiny. The train would travel to the coast, and then the party would sail by ship to meet the French government and sign the Act of Union. The train never left the station. The scheme collapsed as quickly as it arose. The French Prime Minister presented the proposal to the French Council of Ministers, but it was rejected as a desperate plot of an already crumbling Britain to seize the French Empire. Marshal Pétain, an 84-year-old great war hero of World War I, believed that it was his duty to save France. Britain was doomed, he said, and Union would only be a fusion with a corpse. Another minister concluded it would be better to be a Nazi province. At least we would know what that would mean. After hearing news of the French decision, Churchill left the train with a heavy heart. He then drove to Downing Street and got back to work. Within days, Pétain took over the French government and pursued an armistice with Germany. Britain was now alone. Britain was in the middle of collapse. The French knew this, and one of the reasons that many believe that Truman was okay with Churchill's speech is that both leaders were well aware of the state of Britain at this time. At this point of history, we find one of the most powerful nations almost completely and totally spent, and it would see the collapse all but completed by the mid-1960s, and the cause can be traced directly back to the impact of both world wars. Ironically, Britain was considered one of the victorious allies in both wars. But in truth, with the shape that it was in, the defeat of Germany had been mainly the work of the Soviet and American forces, while that of Japan had been an almost entirely American triumph. Britain found itself in a place where it had survived and recovered the territory lost during the war. But the prestige, the authority, the fear, and not to mention its wealth, had been almost totally wiped out. An early symptom of their weakness, at least public evidence, was its withdrawal from India in 1947. During World War II, the British had mobilized. That's just a little bit more palatable of a term for using India's natural resources for their war effort. 
They quickly crushed the attempt of Mahatma Gandhi and the Indian National Congress to force them to quit India in 1942, which was, as you can imagine, an effort to force them out, along with the preservation of resources that were being stripped from the country. One of the ways that it was arranged for this not to make it through the Indian National Congress was the fact that Britain had promised to give India full independence once the war was over. Within months of the end of the war, it was glaringly obvious that Britain lacked the means to go back on their word whether they really wanted to leave or not. It's necessary to point out, and also to help us understand the scope of this ongoing collapse, that during the 19th and early 20th centuries, Britain had dominion over so many portions of the earth that it was said, famously, that the sun never set on the British Empire. Since the end of World War II, however, that sun has been steadily dipping towards the horizon, and today, sundown is truly at hand. Since September of 2014, the trickle effect continues to get a little stronger, with the likes of Scotland, who before that had been a British land for over 300 years, began to waffle on their continued allegiance with the European Union. With its historical power, there is no doubt that the British Empire brought profound changes to the world. But in the decades since its decline after World War II, it's become a kind of historical joke, sometimes even in poor taste. In 2014, the British Embassy in Washington decided, for reasons only known to itself, to tweet a picture of a sparkling cake commemorating the 200th anniversary of burning the White House during the War of 1812. It wasn't long after newspapers got wind of the tweet that the embassy quickly retracted it, tweeting, Apologies for the earlier tweet. Today, UK-US celebrate special relationships and work together shoulder to shoulder across the globe. But, according to Politico magazine's Richard Holleran, even that assessment is somewhat self-delusional. Since the beginning of the Cold War, America has done the lion's share of the shouldering. Britain, the colonizer of America, has become in many ways the colony, and now it's about to get even smaller. Regardless as to what type of amount or distaste you have with the current or historical British Empire, the downsizing process has, no doubt, been a long, exhaustingly hard downward spiral. At its most extensive, the British Empire was comprised of 57 colonies. From London, the British at one point ruled about 20% of the world's population and governed nearly 25% of the world's landmass. When you consider the spread of British influence, not in small part the inclusion of the English language, it gave birth to the United States, one of the world's superpowers, gave birth to the world's largest democracy in India, and perhaps, inadvertently, disseminated British concepts from freedom, democracy, and common law around the globe. On the negative side, Britain once corrupted the entire nation of China with opium, purely to extract drug revenues. Its dominance of subjected people left generations of rage in its wake with many countries, not the least of which are some of those closest to home, like Ireland. Today, that empire has been reduced to 14 scattered islands, such as the British Virgin Islands in the Caribbean. Of course, it's been many years since Britain has acted like an empire. London's imperial might, 
began to crumble during World War II after Japanese armies marched to the gates of India and the shores of Australia, breaking the back of Western colonialism before the Japanese was defeated in 1945. Next time on Beyond the Walls. Some believe the empire officially came to an end in February of 1947 when the British cabled Washington that they no longer had the money or troops to defend Greece or Turkey as the Soviet Union threatened to extend its influence in the early Cold War. The British are finished. Dean Acheson, soon to be Harry Truman's Secretary of State, was said to have remarked when he read the cable. The United States quickly displaced the United Kingdom as the main stabilizing power in the West and took unprecedented actions to save one ally while isolating another. From Mad Lab Studios, this is Beyond the Walls. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the show notes to learn more about this episode, details you might have missed, and more on the Cold War. You can find us and me on social media. You can follow us on Twitter, at WallsBeyond, and me, at SBJames2494. Thank you for listening. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Ben James, and was researched by those of us still inside the walls myself, Aaron Baldwin, and Josh Schmidt. Until next time.